0: So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home after this jesus knowing that all was now fulfilled said to fulfill the scripture i thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in your sovereignty, you have chosen this passage of Scripture for us on this very day. Lord, every time we gather, we want to fix our eyes upon Christ, Christ crucified and risen and coming again, and yet, Lord, in particular this morning, you have for us the crucifixion of Jesus. As we come to such an important and weighty piece of scripture this morning, we we ask for your help. Lord, would you be near to us today? Lord, so much has happened in this one moment on the cross. So many things that you accomplished in one moment, Lord. Um, We could not plunge the depths of this moment in the time that we have today. Lord, all eternity is not enough time to wonder at the majesty of our Savior crucified for us. We thank you that we have all of eternity to wonder in awe and worship at the God that you are. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us this morning. Would you stir up our hearts, stir up our affections for you, Jesus, that we would sit here this morning worshiping you, Jesus, for the Savior that you are to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the single most profound moment in all of history right here in John chapter 19 Jesus, the Son of God, crucified. John's used a lot of titles for Jesus so far throughout the Gospel of John. He's called him the Son of God. He's called him the Word, the Creator of life, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, the Bread of Life, the Truth, the Life, the Living Water. And this very Jesus in this moment is now naked and fastened to a cross. They've taken him outside of the city walls to treat him like an outcast, which we know from where we stand today that Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. But they cast him outside the city walls and they throw as much shame as possible on this man Jesus. Even the placement of his cross right in the middle is meant to highlight the shame that they are placing upon Jesus. You can picture the scene And as we know from the other gospel accounts, this is at the peak of the day when light should be at its most brightest point in the sky, and yet we're told that the sky is full of darkness as the light of the world is crucified. John chapter 3 is happening right now in this moment. If you turn back with me, John chapter 3 and verse 16, one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, it's happening right now. the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. It's no accident that the Lord has miraculously darkened the skies for this moment to picture the evil and the depravity of man that loves Darkness more than the light. I Love that Terrell laid out for us last week. The physical agony that Jesus had experienced leading up to the cross. The flogging. The mocking. The shame that they intended to place upon Jesus. And as Jesus comes to the cross, that only intensifies. Maybe for some of us, the, the physical agony of the cross has been lost on us. John actually doesn't even mention it all that much because the the crucifixions were just so commonplace for his audience, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He didn't need to lay out the, the details of the horrific nature of a crucifixion, and yet for us, I think it's helpful because I've never seen one. I don't know about you. Here's how a biologist describes a crucifixion. The accused, after all of the flogging that we heard about last week, the accused then needed to be nailed To a crossbeam while lying down. So Jesus is thrown to the ground on top of his bloody, torn up back, reopening his wounds, grinding in the dirt, and causing even more bleeding. They would nail his hands to the wood, which in this culture, hands could also include your wrists. The nails most likely went through Jesus' wrists because if the nails were driven into his hand, the weight of the arms would cause the nail to rip through the soft flesh. Therefore, the upper body would not be held to the cross. Because the nails were placed in the wrist, the bones in the lower portion of the hand would support the weight of the arms and the body remains nailed to the cross. The huge nail, probably seven to nine inches long, is drilled through the wrist, damaging or severing the major nerve of the hand, the median nerve. This causes continuous Agonizing pain in both of Jesus' arms. Once the victim is secured, the guards lift the crossbeam and place it on the post already secured in the ground. And as it is lifted, Jesus' full weight pulls down on his nailed wrists and his shoulders and elbows dislocate. In this position, Jesus' arms stretch to a minimum of six inches longer than their original length. It is highly likely that Jesus' feet were nailed through the tops, as often, as often pictured. In this position, with the knees flexed at about 90 degrees, the weight of the body pushes down on the nails, and the ankles support the weight. Normally, to breathe in, our diaphragms must move down, which enlarges the chest cavity, and air automatically moves into the lungs. That's inhaling. And then to exhale, the diaphragm rises up, which compresses the air into the lungs and forces air out in exhale. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on the diaphragm and the air moves into his lungs and remains there. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet, causing even more pain just in order to exhale. In order to speak, air must pass over the vocal cords during exhalation. The difficulty surrounding exhaling leads to a slow form of suffocation Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen levels due to the difficulty in exhaling causes damage to the tissues and capillaries in his body, beginning to leak watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart called pericardial effusion and lungs. The collapsing lungs and failing heart and dehydration and inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. The cross was agonizing and even led to language creating a word to describe a pain that we can't describe by saying this is excruciating. And yet more than the physical suffering of Jesus John highlights that all of this is the sovereign plan of God for salvation that nothing is happening by accident, that every single detail is according to the plan of God. But how could a Jewish man naked and nailed to the cross be the plan of God to save the world? It's a question even today. How can some man who died 2,000 years ago in a shameful, horrific way be God's plan to save sinners Well, what clues us in more than anything is Jesus' final word, where he says, it is finished. An ocean of meaning in one drop of language. I don't know if you remember just a couple years ago, as COVID was just coming onto the scene and and everything was changing in, in a moment. And back in March 2020, we got greeted with this word, that we grew to hate, and it was this word canceled. Everything got canceled. Every single thing that mattered in our lives, it just seemed like everywhere we turned, event after event was canceled. Sporting events, the NBA season got canceled for a moment. The the Olympics got canceled. Maybe one of the greatest sporting events in all of the world, college basketball, March Madness was canceled canceled. So many things, festivals, concerts, conferences, birthdays, family gatherings, weddings, graduations, everything was canceled. This one word seemed to rule over all, sweeping across the world, bringing everything to a halt and crushing our spirits at the same time, canceled. And we kept waiting. Weeks turned into months waiting for things to turn around, and just when we thought maybe it was, we would find out something else, canceled. It was a crushing word that had a lot of power. One word can have a lot of power over our lives. And when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, and he is about to give up his life, he utters one final word. In English, it's three words. But in the original languages here, it's one word. It's the Greek word tetelestai, which simply means finished, completed. And this one word has more power than every other word put together. It is a word that reverberates throughout history and changes Everything, it's not, it's not finished in the sense of like when you go to the dentist and you hate having to sit there getting a shot or getting a tooth filled and it's finally over and you're just like, whew, finished, done. It's not as if Jesus is coming to the end of the cross and he's just like, finally it's over. No, this word, especially when used in religious context, communicates the idea of fulfilling a religious obligation or carrying out a task. It's the idea of accomplishing something. Something has now been completed. It's not just over, but the task has been accomplished. It is done. It's a profound word. The most profound word ever spoken. Jesus' dying word that he speaks very intentionally, he says, to tell us it is finished. And As we come to look at this passage this morning, I want to simply focus on that one word. And what it means for us, what it means for those who come to Jesus and believe in him and do exactly what John 3.16 says, believe in the Son of God, believe that this Jesus is the Messiah, is the one that was sent as a sacrifice for sins, and that whoever believes in him will be saved. For those that believe in Jesus, this word changes everything. So I want to look at together this morning what it means, and we're going to look at seven things this morning. I thought we would do 17, but I narrowed it down to seven, so you're welcome. Seven things that this word means for us as followers of Jesus. The first one is this. It means that the wrath of God has been satisfied. God has wrath for sin. He thunders against wickedness and evil. He hates sin. Now, a lot of us don't like the idea of God having wrath and God having anger, but every single one of us has wrath towards certain things. Those things to us that are so obviously wicked, we hate them. I remember growing up walking into my home after we had been robbed. Everything was scattered everywhere, it was the most violating feeling. And I walked into my home seeing that someone else had been here and taken all of our valuables, and I was angry. I thought to myself, who could possibly be so evil to, to walk into our house and steal our things, steal photos and steal cameras with, with memories and all of these things? How could someone be so cruel and evil to do that to someone else? I remember hating that as a kid. We all have things like that in our lives that are so obviously wrong and evil, we hate them. We were created that way. If we, who have such limited vision, and according to the Bible's definition, are evil and selfish, if we can hate things that are wrong and evil, how much more can God, who's perfectly righteous, have wrath and anger towards things that are wrong and evil and sinful? God hates sin. He hates evil. In fact, it's one of the benefits of reading through the whole Bible You get a picture of God's justice, of his character, of his holiness, that he hates evil. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, God is telling his people, he is calling them to be different, to to reflect his character to all the nations, because all of the other nations are wicked and evil, and God wants to establish a people for himself that show his character, and he's constantly calling them to be set apart and be different And God thunders against the nations for their wickedness and their evil. But eventually, God's own people choose sin and evil for centuries upon centuries. They don't return to God. They don't repent. And eventually, God thunders against their evil. In fact, he even says in Jeremiah chapter 21, he says to his own people, Because of their unwillingness to turn from their evil, they had been sacrificing their children to idols. They had been withholding justice from those that needed it. God eventually says to his own people, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. God has anger for sin. But the book of Romans tells us the good news of what's happening on the cross. In Romans chapter 3, We're told that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The book of Romans uses this word propitiation. It says that God set forward Jesus as a propitiation. This word propitiation is a a translation of a Greek word that's translating a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is the mercy seat. And if you read the Old Testament, the mercy seat was a very significant place in the temple. It was the place where the high priest would go. And he would carry the blood of a sacrificial animal. In order to atone for the sins of God's people, he would pour out the blood on top of the mercy seat. And God would look down upon the mercy seat and no longer seeing the sin of his people, he would now see the sacrificial blood of the animal and he would pardon the sins of his people because the sacrificial blood of this animal. And the book of Romans says Jesus is that sacrificial blood. He is the one that satisfies the wrath of God. So in this moment on the cross as Jesus hangs there, what is far more agonizing than the nails, than the suffocation, than the fluid building up around his heart and his lungs, What is more unfathomable than anything is that Jesus is bearing the punishment for sin. All of the sins for everyone who would ever believe in him, Jesus bears the weight of those sins and God is pouring out his wrath on this sacrificial lamb. The very wages that we deserve for our sin, Jesus takes it. We need a substitute for our sin. The Bible tells us Jesus is that substitute. His blood is the true sacrificial blood. And it's the love of God that does this. The Apostle John tells us this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the love of God, that he would send his own son to bear the weight of his wrath for sin so that you don't have to if you believe That is good news. We cannot possibly fathom what that might be like to bear the weight of God's wrath for one of our sins. This is Jesus in our place. All of the punishment for our sin poured out on him, which means for those who believe today, the wrath of God for your sins has been satisfied. That means there's none left for you. That means there's never a day coming that you have to worry about and fear that someday God's going to bring the thunder down on my sin. That God's just holding back. He's waiting for that moment and he's going to punish me. That day is never coming for the Christian. Never. It is never coming for you. You do not need to be afraid that one day God is going to punish you and pour out his wrath on your sins. Because all of it was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. All of it. That's why he says, it's finished. I've taken all of it. There is none left for you. Is that good news? It's great news. Second thing it means is this it means our debt has been paid. When the Bible talks about sin, it, says that we, it talks about it in the context of incurring a debt against God. <clears throat> Literally, we owe him something. We have a legal debt to God because of our sins. <clears throat> the Bible describes it as a debt. In, in Colossians chapter 2, it, it, it says that we have a certificate of debt against us. Our sins are written on a piece of paper. We owe God for what we've done. And this word that Jesus uses, excuse me, to telestai, this very word was used in the marketplace. It was used to stamp one of these kinds of certificates that would say, you have a debt, you owe someone. This word was stamped on that piece of paper in the marketplace when that debt was paid. It communicated, finished, completed, paid in full. You no longer owe anything. You are Done. Thank you. Appreciate it. And so when Jesus uses this word, it's a word that his audience is familiar with, even from the marketplace, to communicate every single debt you owe to God has now been paid. You do not stand indebted to him anymore. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 says it very explicitly for us. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus knows what he's doing, he knows the debts that we have. In fact, even culturally, you would have to write your own debt on the piece of paper in your own handwriting to hold you accountable, so that when someone looked at it and said, you wrote this, this is your debt, you know it's your debt, <clears throat> and I imagine there's some of us today still carrying around that piece of paper with us, with our sins written on it, we know them, we feel ashamed of them, we feel like they still count against us, we still owe God because of these things, and the cross, on the cross, Jesus is saying, it's paid, it's paid, I took that list out of your hands and I nailed it to the cross. It became my crime and I paid it and I paid it in full. Every last cent of your debt is paid to God. Meaning Christian, today you stand before God with no debt. Full forgiveness for every single sin. All of them. Past, present, and future. You have a sin this morning, you find it difficult to accept the Father's full forgiveness. Hear the words of Jesus. It is finished. All of them. Which means we can be honest about our sins. Because they, they, they're, they're not against us anymore. They've been forgiven, they've been wiped clean. We, we don't have to hide them, there's no shame. The shame, we, our sins have been paid for. We don't need to put up a, a front before others and say, oh, I don't really have much sin. No, we can be honest in confessing it before others and say, yeah, this is my junk. This is my stuff. I, I, I've sinned. I have this stuff in my life. But Jesus has paid for it. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not held against me anymore. It fosters a culture of honesty and transparency because our debt has been paid. It is finished also means this, number three. It means that victory is here. When Jesus says it is finished, it's not a cry of defeat. Jesus dying on the cross is not a temporary loss until the resurrection comes. It's not this moment of of sadness where Jesus lost, but like barely just for like a couple days, and then he rose. So on Sunday we can be happy, but on Friday we'll be sad. No, this is a cry of victory from Jesus. He is bringing in this very moment redemption for us. He is giving us freedom and victory over the things that used to own us and dominate us. We were enslaved, is what the Bible says. We were enslaved to sin. No matter how we got there, we are slaves to sin. It's interesting to note, culturally, there were a few ways to become a slave in the ancient world. There were three. And all of them relate to how we become slaves to sin. The first one is this. You can be born into slavery the same way in which we are born into sin, inheriting a sinful nature from our father, Adam. You could also become a slave by military conquest, by someone coming in and overpowering you and taking you as a slave. Very similarly to how we too are overpowered and mastered by sin. It comes upon us, it's more powerful than we are. We cannot resist it, and it overtakes us and enslaves us. You could also become a slave because your debts forced you into slavery. In the same way, our sin brings a debt that we can't pay and forces us to be enslaved into a life of misery and bondage. And yet Ephesians tells us that on the cross, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. There's a purchasing that's happening on the cross. He is redeeming us. He is buying us out of our slavery. God even gives us a beautiful story in the Old Testament to picture this redemption for us. If you're familiar with the story of Hosea and Gomer, Hosea is a prophet that God comes to and he tells him, go marry a prostitute. I want to mirror to, to my people what it's like when I love you because you prostitute yourself out to all these other gods, all these other idols and yet I faithfully love you and I pursue you again and again and again. And so he tells his prophet Hosea to go marry a prostitute named Gomer and they're married and they have children And then she goes right back into her life of slavery. She sells herself back to the marketplace. And God comes to his prophet and he says, I want you to go again and love the woman who has sold herself to another man. So the wife that belongs to him, that is his own flesh, he now has to go to the marketplace and bid on her and buy her freedom. And he does just that and he walks into the marketplace and he has to bid for what's already his. And as the process unfolds, it becomes very clear. No one is going to outbid Hosea. He will pay the price for his bride. Whatever it costs, he'll pay it because she's priceless to him. And eventually Hosea tells us, I bought her for 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And so I also will be to you. I will be yours and you will be mine. And he redeems her. And God tells this story to tell us what he does for us. He says, I redeem you out of your bondage and your slavery to sin and death and Satan. And I pay the ultimate price my precious blood so that we can be set free and redeemed which means for those that believe in Jesus sin and death and Satan do not own you they have no power over you they do not master you they do not control you they do not determine your future you are set free by the cross And so when Jesus says, it is finished on the cross, it's not just our ears that hear that. It's a cry that rings out in the caverns of hell, and it shakes the enemy. Because he knows with that cry, all of his mastery over God's people is shattered. They've been set free, they've been redeemed. Number four, it means this, it means there is nothing lacking in the death of Christ. Our tendency when we hear it is finished is to offer up an objection and say, no, it's not. It's very much not finished, Jesus. Good start, got me off on the right foot, but I'll take it from here. We often hear the cry of Jesus, it is finished. And we say, no, 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 no. I must do more. I must atone myself. I must achieve my own righteousness. You, you, you might have saved me initially and, and got me in, but I'll take it from here, Jesus. There's still some work to be done. But this is the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus He says, it is finished. He says, there is nothing left. There's nothing lacking. I've done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. I've done everything necessary for you to be saved and kept for all eternity. It's done. This makes Jesus different than anyone else, any other religious leader that's ever existed. In fact, it's been said that Buddha's very last words that he said before he died were this, strive unceasingly. Never finish the work, essentially. You always need to keep striving and earning and seeking. Do it unceasing. But the dying words of Jesus are, it is finished. Because the essential message of Christianity is not do more, try harder, be something, achieve, be a good person. No, the message of Christianity is not do, but it is done. Everything It's accomplished by Jesus on the cross. It's what the book of Ephesians tells us, Ephesians chapter two, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. The essence of Christianity is not go out and accomplish and climb the ladder and achieve. The essence is this, Believe. Receive the finished work of Christ. Rest and trust in all that he has done. Believe and rest. Rest from your striving. Resting meaning not only do we cease to work with our hands, but we cease to work with our souls we cease our striving to find meaning and purpose in life, that we need to accomplish that for ourselves. We cease from striving to justify ourselves and prove ourselves and find safety and find identity and all of these things. We can rest in the fact that Christ finished all of the work on our behalf. We get to rest in him. In fact, what's amazing, John has so many, so many hints to creation in his gospel. Like the whole thing starts with in the beginning was the word. That's how the Bible opens in Genesis 1. In the beginning God created. John is intentionally drawing our eyes back to creation and I think he does it again right here. Because in the beginning God finished his work of creating and then what did he do? He rested. And now here on the cross Jesus finishes his work, and he says, it is finished, which means you can rest. You are now invited to rest because God's done with his work. So it means that there is no work or sacrifice left to be offered. Simply faith alone in what Christ has already done. There is nothing left to be done nothing lacking that God is expecting of you to meet in order for you to be saved, in order for you to have full atonement and full forgiveness. No. Yet there are many lies out there that will tell you Jesus did most of the work, but there's a little bit left for you. In fact, the very doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church tells us that Jesus' death only atoned for sins committed before you're baptized, which is why you need to continue going to mass and doing penance because there still must be some things performed in order for you to have full forgiveness. Which means this, Jesus' sacrifice is good, but it's not finished, it's not enough. There's even a lot of Christian churches with a lot of really bad theology telling you that there's still more for you to do. Teaching, trying to teach us to think that our gifts and our gold and our prayers and our vows and our baptisms and our church attendance somehow make us fit for God. And we must do more of them and try harder at them to become even more fit for God's pleasure and his use. But Jesus said, it is finished. And when he says it is finished, he doesn't mean It is not finished. He means, it is finished. I have done everything necessary. The work is done. Why would we then try to pin our rags to the fine linen of Christ's righteousness? There's nothing lacking in the death of Christ. This word, it is finished, also means this. Number five, that all scripture has been fulfilled in this moment. This is not to say that there are not things continuing after this moment that will still be fulfilled in Christ, but Christ is the culmination of all that God has been doing. In this very moment, he is fulfilling so many things, not just fulfilled prophecy that's coming to fruition here, which we've seen so much of. But the whole of scripture has been promising this very moment of Jesus on the cross. All of the types and the promises and the prophecies and the sacrifices are accomplished in him, in this Jesus, saving us from our sins. It's a pastor named J.D. Greer who walks through each book of the Bible, showing us how it points to Jesus. I want to read what he says. It's helpful. Because of the cross, we can look back on every book in the Bible and see they were preparing us for this moment. In Genesis 2, Jesus was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth, the promised seed of the woman to crush the serpent. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts to save us from the wrath to come. In Leviticus, he was the temple, the holy place where you meet with God. In Numbers, he was our ever-present guide, our pillar of cloud by day and our pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses, in Joshua, he was the conquering warrior leading his people into the promised land. In Judges, he was the broken savior rising up to rescue. In Ruth, he was the kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face our giant all alone. In 1st and 2nd Kings, he was the righteous ruler. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, he was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he is our advocate, giving his life to restore us to royalty. In Job, he is our living redeemer. In the Psalms, he is the one who hears our cries. In Proverbs, he is wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning that lets us escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, he is our lover and our bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In Jeremiah, he is the spirit that writes God's laws on our hearts. In Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the river of life bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, he was the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he was the ever faithful husband pursuing the unfaithful bride. In Joel, he is the restorer of all that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, he was our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, he is the prophet cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. In Micah, he is the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is our reason to rejoice even when our fields are empty. In Zephaniah, he is the great reformer. In Haggai, he is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pierced son, whom every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. All of scripture is pointing us to Jesus on the cross for our sins. No matter what page you turn to, it is preparing our hearts for this Jesus. This word also means this, salvation is secure. It's never changing. It's not adapting, it's not morphing, it's not getting less strong, it is secure. Because for those who believe, your salvation is resting on an already happened, finished past event. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you believe, your salvation is secure because it rests on something that's already happened. Seven and a half years ago, I became a father. What made me a father is I had a child that was born, and he was mine from that day forward, I will always have the status of being a father, no matter what happens. Even if I outlive all my children, I will always have the status of being a father. Why? Because my status today of being a father is grounded in an already past event. We cannot go back in time and change the birth of my children. It's already happened, which means I carry that status till the day I die. Because it's secure. In a far greater way, if you believe in Jesus, your salvation is secure because on the cross, Jesus died. And he said it's finished. So as sure as Jesus died on the cross, you're saved if you believe. As sure as that grave is empty, you're saved if you believe. There's nothing waiting in eternity of like, well, as long as this happens, I'll be saved. No, because this happened, I'm saved. I'm secure. I'm safe. I don't need to be afraid. It is so final and so secure that Jesus, after it's done, does something to tell us that it's secure. Look at what, he said, what it says in Hebrews chapter one. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus was our priest, our great high priest, who brought his own blood into the presence of God and poured out his sacrificial blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he was done, he sat down. There is no priest in the Old Testament that ever sat down because there never stopped needing to be more blood, more sacrifices for sins. Because the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for our sins. So they never sat down because the work was never done. Jesus offers himself, and when he is done, tells us he ascends back to the Father and he sits down because it's finished. This one sacrifice paid for your sins, if you believe. It's done. Jesus sits down to tell us, hey, it's secure. Adam did it. It's, it's done. J.C. Ryle says this, we need not fear. We need not fear that either sin or Satan or God's law shall condemn us on the last day. We may lean back on the thought that we have a Savior who has done all, paid all, accomplished all, performed all that is necessary for our salvation. We can lean back. But it also means this just as much as our salvation is secure, simultaneously, justice is securely coming for those that do not believe. Because as secure as our salvation is, this very moment on the cross also communicates that justice and judgment are securely coming for anyone who will not believe in Jesus and follow him as their Lord and Savior. Everyone who rejects this Jesus and says, I will be my own God, judgment is coming for them. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about this very moment, that through the cry of Jesus, lost souls mourned that day. For those very souls said, it is finished. And if Christ himself, the substitute, could not be permitted to go free till he had finished all his punishment, then we shall never be free. He says, it was their double death knell. For they said, alas for us, justice which would not allow the Savior to escape will never suffer us to be at liberty. It is finished with him and therefore it shall never be finished for us. This cry also means that those that reject Jesus, the pouring out of God's wrath on their sins, will never be finished. But for all who will come and believe, not for all who will come and achieve and prove themselves, but all who will come and believe will be saved. This fills us with confidence. Number seven, the last one is this. This cry means this, is that Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. You know, if we could see Jesus on the cross, we would most assuredly turn our faces away. Because it's bloodier and uglier and more shameful than we can imagine. Jesus doesn't look pretty on the cross. He doesn't have a nice, clean, white diaper on that makes it not shameful he's not handsome he's bloodied he probably barely looks human he's shameful scriptures tell us he is as if as one from whom men hide their faces he's naked bearing all the shame we would turn our faces because it's gross and yet we're told that this is Jesus' glory. And I love what Terrell asked us last week. As you look at this Jesus, can you see the glory? Can you see it? Do you feel the reverberation of his voice as he cries out, it is finished? A voice that echoes across all eternity, from before the beginning of time into the halls of eternity to come. Every corner of the earth, whether it's the palaces or the slums, from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, this Jesus hangs on the cross for our sins, crying out for our salvation. And he says, to Telestai, it is finished. Do you see the glory? Do you hear it silence your objections? as we look at that we hear his cry and we say but but my sin to tell us that but but my shame it is finished but the but, I, but I'm not worthy but I I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough I, I keep failing it is finished but but what about what if I fail again it is finished but Jesus, my sin, it's so dirty. It's so ugly. Do you hear him silence your objections and say, I've paid it all. It's finished. You're forgiven. It's done. i close with how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He just puts it so eloquently, so i got to read it. The debt was now to the last penny all discharged. The atonement and propitiation were made once for all and forever by the one offering made in Jesus' body on the tree. There was the cup. Hell was in it. And the Savior drank it. Not a sip and then a pause, but he drained it until there is not a dreg left for any of his people. The great ten-thronged whip of the law was worn out upon his back. There is no lash left with which to smite one for whom Jesus died. The great bombardment of God's justice has exhausted all its ammunition, there is none left to be hurled against a child of God. Sheathed is your sword, O justice. Silenced is your thunder, O law. There remains nothing now of all the griefs and pains and agonies which chosen sinners ought to have suffered for their sins. For Christ has endured all for his own beloved, and it is finished. It's good news. Let's pray together.